Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you for downloading. My name is Archishwan Chaudhuri, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center or IOWC at McGill University. We have two guests here today who are going to discuss their recently published co-edited volume, Animal Trade Histories in the Indian Ocean World, which they edited with Professor Gwynne Campbell and is published in the Palgrave series in Indian Ocean World Studies. Our first guest is Martha Chaiklin, a historian based in Maryland, USA. Professor Chaiklin received her PhD from Leiden University and has published several works related to animals, trade, and the Indian Ocean world. Among her most recent works are Surat, City of Ivory, which is published in a 2019 Oxford University Press volume edited by Advert Alpers and Chaya Goswami, entitled Transregional Trade and Traders, situating Gujarat in the Indian Ocean from early times to 1900. And Imports an Otaki tortoise shell in early modern Japan, which is published in a 2016 Cambridge University Press volume edited by Karen Hofmeister and Bernd Stefan Grew, entitled Luxury in Global Perspective, Objects and Practices, 1600 to 2000. Professor Chaiklin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our second guest today, is Philip Gooding, who you may know from previous podcasts in which he's usually asking questions. He probably needs little introduction to our regular listeners. In any case, he's a postdoctoral fellow at the IUWC and he has published articles in the Journal of African History and Slavery and Abolition, amongst other journals. Philip, thank you for joining us and for agreeing to once again discuss some of your own work as opposed to the work of others. Thanks, Archisman. Great to be here. I'm going to start with a very broad question about the nature of the book. How did it come about and why animals? Why the Indian Ocean world and why commerce? In short, what did you attempt to achieve from putting these themes into discussion with each other? Professor Chaiklin, maybe you could start off? Yeah, that's a lot of questions in a... Uh short sentence, but let's see if I can handle it. So I have been working on animals since the late 90s when working in the archives in the Netherlands, I noticed a large number of birds being imported, which was not something I had ever seen before in the literature. So when Omri organized a conference. Um, this is Omri Basovich Frankel. He organized a conference. Uh, he held a position that you have now. And he asked me to be the keynote speaker. And the conference was so successful, we thought it should definitely be a book. But Omri ended up having conflicts. So Philip and I took over producing the book out of this conference. So why animals? I mean, I think they're a bit trendy now. But animals are fundamentally intertwined with human history. Shifting the focus from a sort of human-centered viewpoint to animals offers a distinct and essential view of the world. They shaped human interactions like diplomacy, 
you know, you have your panda diplomacy or elephants being exchanged as diplomatic gifts. And animals shaped the, our worldview and their pursuit impacted the environment to a pretty large extent. Economic histories tend to focus on bulk, high value commodities like tea, silk, and spices, but animals are usually sort of one or the other. You know, you got your cows for eating or you have something high value like pearls or ivory, which before the late 19th century was not really shipped in bulk. So this left sort of a large gap in our understanding of the IOW and specifically and you know, in the world in general. Thank you, Professor Chaiklin. Uh, I would like to follow this up now. In the introductory chapter, which uh, the two of you have co-written, you refer to an ongoing and current debate. This debate is about the nature and causes of present day global warming. In your discussion, you refer to ideas about the Anthropocene and the Capitolocene. Could you uh, explain to us uh, the relevance of this very current debate to a book that it's not so much about climate change but it's about animals and it focuses more on history than on the present yeah so i'll uh, i'll take uh, this this question on um so in brief um the capitalocene contests popular notions of the anthropocene the latter that is the anthropocene is generally understood to, to mean the period in which human activity has indelibly shaped global climate. Uh, and that has related, resulted in global warming, um, particularly uh, in the last um, 250 years. Um, Capitalist scholars essentially contest this notion that it's human activity um, enacting global warming. Um, it is not humans per se that create it, they argue, but a specific set of humans working within a distinct structure, that structure being capitalism. Um, and if they want to, then in so doing, they look for the roots of capitalism, um, um, which they argue uh, are in an agricultural revolution uh, in Northern Europe during the late 15th century. And of course, this periodization about the birth of capitalism um, is in line with um, Emmanuel Wallerstein's um, world systems theory. This period from the late 15th century is also marks the beginning of the age of exploration in which Christopher Columbus traversed the Atlantic to reach the Americas. Vasco da Gama um, went around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and Capitalist scholars essentially argue that from this point on, Europeans are um, exporting capitalism and thereby also reshaping patterns of human environment interaction the world over, including in the Indian Ocean world. There are several nuances here, um, and I urge those of you who are interested in these ideas to look at the work, at, um, especially of Jason W. Moore, especially the summaries of his ideas, which are published in the Journal of Peasant Studies in 2017 and 2018. I think the Capitalocene is quite compelling, um, even though in the book um, we can test some aspects of it. The aspects that we can test are those that relate to history uh, and its usage in the Indian Ocean world. 
We argue, in fact, that human-environment interaction and as a subset of this human-animal um, interaction in the Indian Ocean world was shaped by several factors since 1500, not just the expansion of capitalism from Europe. In the Indian Ocean world, ways of interacting with and trading animals remain robust in the face of European expansion, shaping European structures in interesting and perhaps unexpected ways. And this theme of Indian Ocean world robustness in the face of European expansion really pervades a lot of the chapters uh, in the book as well. And I can draw your attention to a few of them. We discuss Rear Winter's chapter, for example, which studies the, uh, um, the, the exchange uh, of live animals under the Dutch East India Company. And she argues that the VOC um, were, quote, the couriers of the Indian Ocean world, not the principal traders, demanders, or suppliers of goods. Rather, they're integrated into Indian Ocean world systems. Similarly, Sam Ostroff documents um, the English East India Company's difficulty in demarcating space and sovereignty in the pearling regions of the Manas Strait between South India and Sri Lanka. Sundar Vlad Lamudi focuses uh, on the same region and shows how Tamil Muslim conch shell divers and traders usurped English slash British regulations in the early 19th century. Similarly, Will William uh, Clarence Smith examines the history of trades uh, of the humble donkey, which he argues was shaped by Indian Ocean world cultural and ecological constraints. Uh, and I can also draw your attention to um, Alicia Spray and Ken Hall's chapter, uh, in which they examine the role of Ayataya's kings on in their ongoing control and influence over the deerskin trade to Japan, despite VOC attempts at interference in the 17th century. This is not an exhaustive list of the chapters, um, and I, but I do urge listeners to check these chapters out and the other ones uh, in the book. But in sum, they show that the idea of the capitalist seems to be somewhat Eurocentric uh, and presentist in its portrayal of history uh, in the Indian Ocean world. Thank you, Philip. I'm now going to ask you questions about your two standalone chapters. I will start with a question to you, Philip, because your chapter comes first in the book. For instance, on page 248 of your chapter on the ivory trade in 19th century East Africa, you write, if in the following pages, elephants and even ivory gradually become obscured behind a more human-focused history, it is for good reason. What are the reasons here? Why in a book that focuses on animals do animals and their products become obscured? Thanks, Archiman. Uh, there are a couple of things going on here. Firstly, the obvious one is sources. And I think this is a problem that is encountered by many historians or social sciences focusing on animals. I rely on 19th century sources written mostly by Europeans um, who are mostly explorers or missionaries. They rarely discuss the lives of animals. And when they did, actually, they got some things wrong, which well, subsequent scientific research has shown to be wrong. The most famous in this context is um, the idea of the ivory frontier. Um, this was the idea that traders from the Indian Ocean coast went, to the, uh, went into the interior of Africa, and as they did, they depopulated the regions they encountered um, of elephants. Uh, and they went further and further interior, into the interior, basically to find more elephants. Um, this has been debunked, actually, 
ivory was being traded from the deep interior from um, since long before traders came from the coast. Uh, and also elephants continue to survive in which in regions around where um, traders from the coast lived um, throughout the 19th century. Thus, this is basically to say that animals and elephants are very much obscured in the archive, uh, despite my best attempts to draw readers' attention to the experiences of elephants via different methods of hunting, for example. The second thing going on here, as for why elephants and even ivory become a little bit obscured, um, is because of periodization. This, the second half of the 19th century um, was the period in world history when East Africa really became integrated into the world economy for the first time. It's the first time when it's really influenced by capitalism. Um, this can be seen, and this is the main driver in this context, was the demand for ivory. Um, this started um, in South Asia um, with an increased demand for African ivory to make um, ivory products. Um, but especially, um, it applied to increased demand uh, in America uh, and Europe for um, billiard balls and piano keys. Um, East African ivory was demanded over South Asian ivory uh, in this context. It is softer and therefore, oh, oh, well, I suppose, less liable to cracking under the industrialized process. And also, it's generally bigger. And this was incredibly important for making things like bangles, uh, which are made from like, the cross section of an ivory of an elephant's tusk, and for billiard balls, which are simply made from the middle of the tusk. Thus, uh, in this period, the animal, the elephant, is being marginalized by the growing world capitalist system. Elephants, I suppose tuskers maintained a certain symbolic capital, but generally speaking, elephants were not valued as much as living beings, beings as they were valued for their products as commodities. Human processes dominated um, a lot about elephant lives uh, in this period. And my chapter, chapter shows that um, to a large degree by focusing on a lot of human-focused processes. There are some qualifications here to be made, um, and that very much relates to, I suppose, my answer to your first question about the capitalist scene. It does not mean that Europeans, Americans, or capitalism were hegemonic here. Um, East African ivory trade was mediated between Indian financiers, Amani and African traders, tra Amani and African traders, uh, and African porters and elephant hunters. These distinctly Indian Ocean world influences shaped the ivory trade in distinct ways at the exclusion and much to the annoyance of Europeans. Their influence was such that the British for most of the 19th century um, purchased most of their East African ivory in India, not in Africa. They relied on Indian Ocean world networks um, to expand into the region. And again, I think this speaks to the robustness of Indian Ocean world networks in the face of European capitalist expansion. And this applies even in the late 19th century, right on the eve of the scramble for Africa. Thank you, Philip. I now have a question for Professor Chaiklin. Your chapter on peacock feathers in Japan is fascinating, showing a longer durée 
history of peacock feathers role in Japanese history, in Japanese relations with the wider world, and in the wider world's perceptions of Japan. You describe this process on page 279 as a complete cycle of import, absorption, appropriation, and reappropriation. For our listeners, could you please expand on what this process means? Sure. So I came up with the phrase sort of as a way to explain why physical objects move through the world sort of through shifting landscapes of the human mind. Because I think normally if you listen to, um, you know, if you heard about a chapter about peacock feathers, you would wonder why you would even care about such a thing. So in this specific case, early modern Japan is usually defined by its isolationism. While appropriation is usually framed within the context of one dominant society taking from another, that doesn't really reflect the nuance of human interaction. So like was Chinese culture dominant in Japan if it was willingly adopted by the Japanese or vice versa? In the case of peacock feathers in Japan, they sort of arrive with multi-layered meanings from the transmitting culture that combine with existing beliefs about feathers. So peacock feathers were appropriated in Japan, but filtered through trading partners and they become absorbed into sort of the cultural landscape of Japan. So when Japan is forced to open to the West through gunboat diplomacy in 1854, um, the then sort of dominant culture, Westerners saw peacock feathers as sufficiently Japanese to make them a representative motive of what they call Japanism, which was the interest in things Japanese that influenced, you know, like impressionist art and um, a lot of the visual culture of the time. So despite the fact that peacocks are distinctly a creature of the IOW, they become to represent Japan. So this inspires people like Louis Tiffany to produce peacock glass, for example. And so peacocks become filtered through yet another lens to become something new yet again. And that's the cycle that I was trying to describe. Thank you, Professor Chaitlin. That's it for my questions. Thank you to both of you for joining us today and for discussing your research. Once again, their co-edited volume is Animal Trade Histories in the Indian Ocean World, and it's out in hardback and ebook format now. A link to the book is enclosed in the description. Please recommend it to a university library near you. Thank you also to our listeners for downloading. Once again, my name is Archishman Chaudhuri, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world. 